And we're currently in the middle of a teaching series called, What is the Gospel? The Gospel is quite simply the good news. It is the message of God redeeming the world through the death, burial, and of course, resurrection of His Messiah. And, and the purpose of this message of the Gospel is for God to be displayed, to have His name magnified across all of creation. And so thus far in this, in this teaching series, we have learned that the gospel is both the beginning, so you, you begin in Christ with the gospel, but it's not just the beginning, it is also the continuation. And so we, we begin in Christ with the gospel, but we also continue and we grow in Christ because of the gospel. And so growth in Christ is never going beyond the gospel. Growth in Christ is simply going deeper into the gospel. We have learned that the gospel is personal. We've learned that we have personally broken God's laws and our sin has separated us from God. And we've learned that there are four key words. So the gospel in four words is God, man, Christ, and response. And we've learned how this is a simple way to know, to remember the gospel. God, well, what is he? Righteous creator. Man, condemned sinner. Christ, glorious redeemer response must be faith and repentance and so you must learn these four key words because when you speak to your friends when you share with co-workers or neighbors or people just in your series of influence you can't share what you don't have I mean it's logical if you don't have it you can't share it and so it's important that we learn these four key words so that we can share the gospel clearly with those in our world because we're commanded to but we also in the gospel is not just personal it is personal but it's bigger than that the gospel also is cosmic it is God's plan to redeem and restore the entire created order all of the universe that God made we learned this last week the gospel in four words is also creation fall redemption and consummation and so these four words describe how God created, humans caused it to fall, Christ is redeeming it through the cross, and one day he's going to end this plan, he's going to consummate it with the new heavens and the new earth, with us enjoying our God for eternity. So it's one gospel, the story of God's redemption, with two vantage points, the personal and the cosmic. And the more that we understand the gospel fully, when we have a good grasp of what the gospel is and what it means and how it matters, what will happen is you'll have a greater sense of the size and beauty and magnificence and glory of God. And the more that you begin to see the amazingness of God, the more your life will be transformed. Today we're continuing in this series and we're looking at two symbols, two visible signs of the gospel that Jesus gave to us. And so these two special signs that God gave to his people are a picture of the gospel itself. The, the two signs are, I'm sure you can guess them, baptism and communion. If you notice, we have the elements ready for us to partake in a little bit later. We will, but first we're going to talk about what this means. Now, when we talk about these two visible pictures, these signs of the gospel, baptism and communion, we call them ordinances. You're like, well, what's an ordinance? 
Well, we call it an ordinance because we're emphasizing that our master, Jesus, has ordained these two signs. So Jesus told us to do them. He has decreed. And so because Jesus commanded us, ordained, that we would observe these two signs, we call them the two ordinances of the church. Now, both of these, baptism and communion, serve as as visible demonstrations of the gospel. They are both external symbols of an internal reality. So again, this is important. This is very important because I don't, I don't presume to think that all of us have the same background. We have many different church backgrounds and traditions and just church experience. And so this is important for you to know what God's Word teaches. And as a church, what our convictions on God's Word is, that these two signs, baptism and communion, are external symbols that represent internal deep spiritual realities. And so communion and baptism do not save you. They are a sign, the evidence that you have been saved. And so they are not a, quote, means of grace. They don't save you. All the grace that you need is imparted to you through the work of Christ on the cross. As we respond with faith and repentance, you have grace. These elements don't give you any extra grace, but what they do is still very important, and we'll look at that this morning. So we'll see exactly what is the significance of this sign of the Lord's Supper or communion. So today we'll talk about communion. Next week we'll talk about baptism so that we know exactly what we're talking about. And so before we go any further in talking about this, we need to look at God's Word because that's where our authority lies. And so we're looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a very important passage that describes the Lord's table. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 34. The whole chapter, really, but we're going to focus on just these verses for this morning. And it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. Communion is a very simple act, but it's an equally holy act. Quite simply, communion is the act of taking bread and juice. Some traditions use wine, that's fine, but we use grape juice. 
and it's distributed to believers in Jesus Christ for the purpose of focusing on the gospel, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. I want to read to you from our belief statement. This is out of the Evangelical Community Church Off-Island, ECC Off-Island belief statement. It says, In the Lord's Supper or communion, the believer partakes of the bread and the cup in remembrance of Jesus Christ, proclaiming his death. The Lord's Supper should be a special time of self-examination. So it's a simple act that is very holy, and it proclaims the very gospel itself. And so let's look at four truths. So if you're taking notes, there are four truths that we're going to look at this morning about the significance of communion, all coming from this one text. Number one, communion is picturing the gospel. So it's a picture of the gospel. That's what communion is. It's picturing the gospel. We just read it in verses 23 through 25. It says, this is my body, which is for you. And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And do it as often remembrance of me. And so the Apostle Paul is here relaying information that Jesus gave to him. He, he says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So he says that he received this revelation from Jesus, and now he is delivering it. He is imparting it to God's people, which, of course, includes you and me today in the restaurant of a zoo. Because we're still following the same Jesus that revealed this to Paul. And so this is from God's word, and he's passing it along. And so he says that on the night that Christ was betrayed, that he took bread. It says that he then broke the bread. It says that he gave thanks for it, and that he then distributed to his followers. And he says, this bread is my body. And he says, this cup is my blood. Now, Jesus was speaking symbolically. He was not speaking literally that this wine and that this bread is literally my body and my blood. It's a picture beautifully displaying the very gospel itself. So when we partake of the Lord's table, as we will in, in just a few moments, we're performing a sign, a very important, even prophetic sign that points to God's very own redemption through Christ. And so we have to understand the context here, because if you don't have the context, then this just doesn't make very much sense. It's a little cup of juice that will leave you more thirsty after you're done, a little piece of bread that's not very filling. And so if it's going to be for the physical benefits, you're not getting very much of it. It's not a great meal, purely physically speaking. The significance goes far beyond the physical bread and, and the wine, or in our case, the grape juice. It's more important, but we have to know the context in order for this to come alive and for us to see the significance. On the very night where Christ was betrayed, when he instituted communion for the church, he was celebrating a very important meal. This is not some random meal. They weren't having hardies, all right? This was not takeout. This is not just having a random dinner. It was a very specific meal. It was the Passover meal. We read about it earlier. Yaakov, who's been in our church from day one, it comes early and sets up and is an amazing behind-the-scenes leader, by the way. I know he's mad at me now because I just, I just tottered his horn, but I love Yaakov. 
he came up earlier and he read out of Exodus 12. He read Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14. That entire chapter in Exodus 12 describes the Passover. Now, if you're unfamiliar and if, and if you're kind of new to the church world and you're like, I'm not sure what, that, what is the Passover, I've heard of that, maybe, but what exactly is it? Well, you have to know the context is that the people of God, the nation of Israel, were in slavery. They were in slavery where? In Egypt. So this pagan nation that did not believe, did not love the one true God, they had their myriad of other gods, these Egyptians had enslaved God's people. And so what happened here is God sent a deliverer, his name is Moses, to free God's people. But the Pharaoh would not do it. The Pharaoh would not, the king of, of Egypt, would not allow the Israelites to go free. The Israelites were enslaved. They were in bondage. They could not liberate themselves. And so God sent a curse. He's actually sent ten plagues. But the tenth one, this ultimate curse, was showing his holiness, his justice. And God was about to pour out his wrath on the nation of Egypt. The firstborn, as we read in Exodus 12, the firstborn of every family would die. I'm like, well, that's, all kind, of, that's kind of harsh. Well, God is holy. And this is talking about his holiness and how the Egyptians had violated and broken God's laws and a holy God cannot be in the presence of evil. And so the firstborn child would die for the sins of the entire family as a representative. So the firstborn child would represent his family and would die in the place of the family for their sins. And so God's justice and his holiness and his wrath were being enacted upon the Egyptians. See, but here's the problem. The Israelites, maybe they were in slavery and couldn't free themselves, but before a holy God, they were just as sinful. The Israelites were not without sin. The Israelites also had broken God's laws. The Israelites also were condemned under a holy God. The Israelites also would need to have their firstborn son die in the place of the family's sins as a representative. But you see, God had a plan. God had a rescue plan. God had a plan of redemption. And so what he did, as we read a few minutes ago, he had the Israelites slaughter a baby sheep, take a lamb, slit its throat, kill the lamb, take the blood from that lamb, and smear it across the doorposts of their homes, and then have this special Passover meal together that we read about. And he said that this will commemorate God's redemption, God's saving his people from their sin. And so that night when God visited the land of Egypt, he killed every single one of the firstborn of Egypt's children. Yet, when he went to the Israelite home and saw the blood smeared across the doorpost, God would then pass over that home and not strike the firstborn dead. Because that lamb had served as the substitute. Because that lamb was the sacrificial lamb that died in the place of that son. So that the son could be spared and the sins of the family could be accounted for. 
could be paid for. And so God didn't ignore their sin. Their sin was paid for. The son didn't die. A lamb died in the place of the son who represented the family's sin. The Passover points to the gospel of Jesus Christ because Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, which is why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the ultimate, final, once for all, Passover lamb who died in your place and in mine. See, this time, the firstborn, the son, the preeminent one, the son of God, would not be spared. You see, at at the original Passover, the son was spared because the lamb died in his place. But with God... The son was not spared. The son died for you and for me as the lamb. This changes everything. We have to understand the significance of the Passover that Jesus was celebrating in connection to communion because you and I transgress the lines Transgress means to cross, to go over, and so we transgress the lines of God's holiness. We're the ones that have sinned, yet Jesus was struck dead for it. And it gives us the gospel. The cross of Christ gives us the clearest and most complete picture of God's glory. That's what we see in the cross. We see the generosity of God. You can't miss this. The cross, yes, The bloody cross shows the generosity of God's grace. God being good to us. And communion is a fulfillment of Passover. Communion is a very picture of the gospel that we have believed and that has transformed us and gives us an eternal hope. Because there is a cross that was then left empty. There is a grave. There is a tomb that was for three days occupied on the third glorious day, was then empty because the Lamb of God, the Son of God, was resurrected. He did die, but he didn't stay dead. And so when we approach the Lord's table, and the the bread symbolizes the body of Christ that was broken for us. It symbolizes, the, the, the cup does, the blood that was poured out for us. We celebrate it not with somber, sad faces. Oh, poor Jesus. No, poor Jesus. He's alive. He's a conqueror. He's victorious. He's our king. He's alive today. He offers us hope. We don't come with sad faces. We'll talk in a minute that there is some reflection that's part of the, the Lord's table. Not denying that. But this is a picture of our salvation, that Jesus was enough. His sacrifice is all that we need. And so our faith is made possible. Your faith and my faith exists because someone proclaimed the gospel to you. Someone told you, you're a sinner. Will you please repent and believe in Jesus? And you said, I agree. I agree. I'm a sinner. And on that day when you said, I agree, I'm a sinner, and you placed a complete trust in God, and you repented of your sins, at that point you were instantly indwelt by his Holy Spirit. And so our faith is made possible because someone told us the gospel. 
if no one had told you the gospel, you wouldn't be here this morning. You wouldn't care about Jesus. So the very same proclamation of the gospel that has changed us is the very same proclamation that we make when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take communion. We are actually proclaiming the gospel. It's a visible, tangible sign. And so if someone would come in later on and say in about 25 minutes or so, if someone would come in and sees us in the middle of communion and they see us eating the bread and, and drinking the cup, and they, they'd say, well, what is that? What is, what is this gospel thing that they're talking about? When they would see us observing communion, they are actually seeing the gospel. They're seeing it. And so it's important for our faith that we understand the context of what Christ has done and how this is a picture of it, that we proclaim the gospel. But there's a second thing here that we read in this passage. is So first of all, it's a picture of the gospel. But second of all, communion enables progressing in sanctification. So it's picturing the gospel, and it's progressing in sanctification. Like, oh, those are really big words, Pastor. What do you mean? Well, progressing means advancing, continuing. That's all that means, okay? And so when I say progressing, I just mean continuing, keep going. In sanctification, that's a big word. Sanctification is a big word. At the root is to sanctify. It means to be holy. And so sanctification simply means being made holy, being made more like Jesus, having character, having thoughts, having spending habits, having how you spend your time, having your whole life look more like Christ, having Christ-like character and life and lifestyle. And so when I say that, that communion is progressing in sanctification, it is advancing, continuing in your spiritual growth toward maturity in Christ. So communion enables you to grow spiritually. Well, how does it do that? Let's read it again because we just read it a second ago. Verses 27 and 40, it says, Therefore, whoever eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty. So he says, if you eat or drink unworthily, you're guilty. And the next verse, 28, let a person examine himself, he says. Verse 29, he says that we need to discern. So the words are like discerning and examining and not being condemned. And so all of this language. And so when he says in verse 27, to not partake of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner, He's saying that you need to then examine yourself. How are you doing? How are you following Christ? How is your thought life? How, how are you spending your time? How has your anger been? How have you been towards other people? All of these different relationships that you have, first and foremost towards God and then towards other people. How are you doing as you're following Christ? And so when we come to the Lord's table, we do so examining ourselves. And then verses 30 to through 32, he talks about God's discipline and how God disciplines us and how we need to examine ourselves and repent before we take the Lord's table because otherwise God's not pleased with you and he's going to discipline you. And he does so because he loves you, because you belong to him. And as a good father, I don't want children that are spoiled. I want children that are mature. Well, God wants the same thing. He wants you to be mature in your life and in your faith. And so he does discipline us. And so we need to come to the Lord's table really understanding this. But remember, 
This is a picture of the gospel that helps us to continue in the gospel and to grow. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. We looked at that two weeks ago in Romans 1, 16 and 17. That the gospel is the power of God. The gospel doesn't just reveal the power of God. The gospel, listen, is, the gospel is the power of God. Jesus was victorious over death and sin and Satan. He has triumphed victoriously, and his grace is evident, and he gives us the power. And so when you truly, with all of your heart, repent and believe, the power of the gospel is released into you. You see, the gospel doesn't just tell us about the power of God. The gospel is the power of God itself to change you. Through the power of his spirit, when you hear the gospel, your heart is recreated to then love the things that God commands. This is very important. This is the key to transformation in your life, is when you truly believe the gospel with all of your heart, and you're walking in the spirit, what happens is your heart is changed. And the I have to is transformed into a I want to. Think of it this way. When Jesus saw the lame man who could not walk, and Jesus said, get up, roll up your mat, and walk, he had an instruction, right? He had to do something. So God told him, get up, get your mat, and walk out. Those are the instructions. That was what he was supposed to do. But he couldn't do it. He was lame. He was paralyzed. Jesus didn't just give him the instruction. He gave him the power to do it. In the words of Jesus, he had the power to actually get up, pick up his mat, and walk. So the gospel doesn't just tell you what to do. It gives you the power of God to do it. But you tap into that when you respond to God with faith and repentance. Do you truly want transformation? I'm sure you do. I'm sure you want to live different, think different, be different. I I know you do, because you wouldn't be here if you had it all figured out and had it all together. You probably wouldn't be here on a Friday morning. The fact that you're here tells me that you want more of God. You want to be more like him. You want to pursue him more. Do you want that? Believe the gospel. Live the gospel. Breathe the gospel. And when we come to the Lord's table, we do so reaffirming, renewing our faith and our repentance to God. You see, the entire Christian life is about pursuing Jesus. That's what it's about. It's pursuing him. And here's what we forget. We forget. I mean, we get amnesia. I mean, it's remarkable. Talking to my wife just this morning about a friend of ours who's not a believer, who's very much lost in her life. And we're saying, Man, there's just no hope for her. And I'm like, oh, I rebuke that thought. That's just not true. There is hope. His name is Jesus through the power of the gospel. We gave her a Bible, and we are praying for her. And the reality is that God can change her life. He absolutely can. It looks hopeless and bleak, and just there's just no way from a human standpoint. But the power of God is for salvation for all who believe. God really can. Power 
really does exist. Prayer really does work. It really does. And we get amnesia, and we doubt, and we just live these feeble, defeated lives. And we don't need to. We really don't. We're too easily pleased with what this world has to offer when God has so much more. But we need daily wisdom from God. We need daily wisdom from God, from his word, and we need daily correction. Listen, daily. We need daily wisdom from God, and we need daily correction from God. It is the only way, and it's all based upon what he did. You see, the gospel is good news, right? It is. That's what the word means. Gospel means good news. It's the good news of what? Of forgiveness, the good news of grace, the good news of of redemption, you know, the good news of healing and of hope. This is all good news, but here's the thing, is the good news of the gospel doesn't really make sense unless you truly believe and admit the bad news first. What is the bad news of the gospel? The bad news is that we have a disease, and this disease is spiritual, and it's in your heart, and this spiritual disease is terminal. And there is no other hope for you, that we are sinful and that we don't deserve God or heaven. We have to admit the bad news first, that our our condition is terminal. And when we admit the bad news, then the good news of the cross actually makes sense. So when we approach the Lord's table, we do so remembering that as a believer, we need to have a lifestyle, a lifestyle of what? of faith and repentance. You see, we think that we did that at first to receive Jesus, and we just forget about that. No, no, no. We need to continue living the lifestyle of faith in Jesus and repenting every day, going back to the cross for our sanctification to progress. And communion puts you in the position to grow when we partake of it. And so it's, it's picturing the gospel. It's progressing in sanctification. Thirdly, communion is participating in fellowship. And so it's participating in fellowship. So it's picturing, progressing, and it's participating. Participating in what? In fellowship. We read it in verses 33 through 34. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that no one can come together and will not be for judgment. So he says, wait for one another. Now, this, this issue is interesting. It's funny. He says that if you're hungry, eat at home. He's saying you're not going to get full eating a little piece of bread. You're not. It, this is not about your physical hunger. This is about your spiritual hunger. It's much bigger than that. And then he says when you come together to eat at the Lord's table, he says wait for one another. Now, that is connected to earlier in the chapter. I didn't read it this morning, but on your own time you can where he's talking about division in the church and having unity. And so he's combining this whole conversation of communion with unity. And he says, wait for one another. That language is referring to a receiving and a welcoming one another. So this wait refers to a receiving, a, a acknowledging, and a embracing one another, waiting for each other. So Paul is connecting fellowship and unity with the Lord's table. Because quite honestly, communion is a symbol of Christian fellowship and unity. 
Because what makes us united? It's not our language, because that's different. It's not our skin color. That's pretty darn different in here, too. It's not our home country. That's different. Well, what brings us together? I was reading just yesterday in the newest Tamat Abu Dhabi. I don't know if you read that or not, but it's, you know, it's interesting sometimes. The article is in there. And I just picked up yesterday's, and there's, on, like on the second page, there's a, there's a little advertisement where people that are new to Abu Dhabi can come and go see, it's funny, a coach. Now, not a counselor, get some coaching on how to adapt to Abu Dhabi and the challenges of Abu Dhabi and meeting other expats so that you're not alone. And they charge like a 1,000 dirhams for this coaching and meeting other people. I think, we do it for free. We do it every week. Now, we do ask because God says that we do tithe, but that's for God's kingdom. It's not a charge. There's no bill. You give what God put in your heart for his glory. But we don't charge you. It's amazing to me, this secular view of Abu Dhabi. And, oh, it's so hard here, and we're alone. You have to pay a 1,000 dirhams just to go meet other people and talk to a coach, not a counselor, for one hour. It's counseling. All right, just admit it. That's what it is. I want to call it and say, you know what? Send them to our church. We'll love them, and we will embrace them. We will welcome them. We will wait for them at the door. We will make them feel like Abu Dhabi is an amazing place to live because of this word called fellowship. But it only happens if you share the gospel. See, he's talking, he says, brothers. Okay, brothers and sisters share something. Well, a last name, but beyond that, they share the same father. If we're all brothers and sisters, there's a reason why. Because we share God as our father. We share the same gospel that has saved us. The same blood-stained doorposts that point to the blood-stained cross has saved us. And we share that. And everything else just doesn't matter. It's so secondary. We have the gospel. We have our Savior. We have each other. And everything else that gets in the way should not be there. See, as a faith family, we need unity. We need to invite each other, welcome each other. This is so critical for our church. That's why this is called communion. Because we commune together come to the Lord's table together. And so we, we proclaim the very gospel together that God has used to save us. So in this teaching series, I've been trying every week to give you at least one point of application. We've talked about your identity in Christ. We've talked about your behavior. We talked about your daily work last week and how all of it is impacted by the gospel because the gospel is not just theory or religious belief. It impacts everything. So today we're going to apply the gospel to your relationships, okay? So let's look at how does the gospel impact how you relate to other human beings, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors, your spouse. By the way, the main application here really is to your wife or husband, only because that is the closest, most intimate relationship that you have. But the truth here applies to all relationships, How does the gospel really impact their relationships? Let me just say this up front. It is impossible, and I mean this, it is impossible to truly experience the grace of God through the gospel, to understand what Christ did for you, 
and the weight and the gravity of that. And to have his Holy Spirit to be transformed by the gospel, it is impossible to experience that and not become a person who is kind and generous and patient and loving. It's just not possible. You will not find a disciple of Jesus that is truly captivated by the gospel, who is growing in his faith, who is a jerk and is mean and rips people and gossip. You won't find it. The people that yell and are angry at each other and are mean and have broken relationships don't understand the gospel. They don't. They might say they do, and they might on a certain theoretical level, but it has not been internalized. They're not living, eating, breathing the gospel of Jesus. If you have broken relationships, I'm just being honest with you, if you have broken relationships, whether it's with your wife, husband, friends, grown children, co-workers, neighbors, if, if you have broken relationships, you know what you have? A gospel problem. Your problem is a gospel. If you have broken relationships, the reason is that you don't fully understand the gospel. Because if you are having marital problems, I can guarantee you right now, I've talked to so many couples over the years that have marital problems, it always boils down to one or both don't fully understand the gospel. They don't. They even go to church. They claim they do, but they don't. It changes everything. See, here's what happens. This is so easy. Oh, my goodness. We all do this. You have someone in your life, friend, coworker, spouse, name it, whoever. And they sin, right? Sure they do. Now let me ask you this next question. Is it difficult or is it easy to identify the other person's sin? Married, husband, is it easy to see your wife's sin? The answer is yes, it is. Wives, is it easy to see your husband's sin? Yes, it is. It is not difficult to see the sin in other people. It's really quite easy. And we spot it and we identify it and we dwell on it, and we mention it to them, and you do this, and you do this, and you don't do this, and we always identify where other people are wrong, and we, and we can very easily see where our spouse or others are in sin. Not hard to do. But you see, the gospel is huge, because the gospel says that you have sinned, and that you have offended a holy God, and you don't deserve God's goodness that you don't deserve anything but God's judgment is what we deserve. And God has graciously given you salvation. He has sacrificed his son for you. But see, when you're in pain, this is hard to internalize. When you're hurt by your husband or your wife, when they have hurt you, when if you're, now you walk around, you look fine, but your soul, if we could see it, it's bleeding and it's stabbed and you're in pain. Because your spouse or your wife has been stabbing you. And you're emotionally in pain. Spiritually, you're wounded. And when you're in pain, it's very difficult to see anything but your own pain. It's difficult to think about anything other than your own pain. And so what we tend to do when we're in pain is we lash out. And we want revenge. We want to inflict pain on the person that inflicted pain on us. So my wife hurt me, I want to hurt her back. I want her to feel the pain that she, she's made me hurt, so now I want her to hurt. I want her to feel some pain, because it's not right that she's over there just chilling, happy, stabbing away at my soul. I want her to feel pain. 
And so what do I do? I take up my knife and I stab her back now. So now she's in pain. And I actually think foolishly to myself that if she would just feel the pain that I'm feeling, then she'll realize what she's doing to me, and then she'll feel sorry. And she'll come to, oh, you know what? Now I know the pain that I've put you through because I also not feel this pain that you've now done to me. And so please forgive me for what I did to you. Does it ever happen? Does that ever happen? No. No. No, no, no. That will never, ever happen. It goes against our nature. It won't happen. If, if you have inflicted pain on someone and then inflict pain back on you and you're just hurting each other, it gets out of control. It's just the cycle, and it goes further down the toilet until you're in the sewer. It doesn't work. But think about the gospel. Did we hurt God? Yes. Yes. Who's the most offended person when you sin? The person who made you, who loves you, who gave you his image, who made you for his own joy and pleasure to display his glory, and he made you for himself. And when you sin, I don't care who it is against, when you sin, God is the most offended party. God is hurt the most when you sin. And if you don't think so, read Psalm 51. You can read David's confession in there. And David is saying, against you and only you have I sinned. And that's not even true because David has sinned against lots of people. But he knew that his sin was directed towards God. And God was wounded. God had been hurt because of what David did and what we do. And so when we hurt God, did God hurt us back? Did God inflict pain on us and say, ah, you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back now, so you'll repent and believe in me? No. What did God do when we had hurt him? He blessed you. He forgave you. His son died for you. You see, we repent only when we realize the goodness and the kindness of God. When you think back to that day when you said, I'm a sinner, and you repented of your sins and you turned to Jesus, it was not because God had hurt you. It was because you realized how amazing his grace was towards you when you sensed God pouring out his kindness on you undeserved kindness on you, when you sensed that in your heart, you were overwhelmed by God's goodness. You were overwhelmed by God's kindness. You were overwhelmed by what the cross meant for you, and your response to his kindness was repentance and faith. That's how people change. You want your marriage to get better? You want your relationships to heal? What you need is supernatural power because what's natural to us is to get revenge, to pay back evil for evil. But God says, don't pay back evil for evil. Instead, bless. God has shown you grace. You see, we need to understand something, that you and I have a deep need for grace. If you had a much clearer sense 
of how much God has forgiven you in the gospel, if you understood how much grace God had given you, then you'd be more willing to offer grace to others, to be patient with others, to forgive others. When we are captivated, overwhelmed by the grace of God in the gospel, we will then be more, able, more willing to give others grace, to be patient when others hurt us. Because my wife hurts me too, and I hurt her all the time. Not, not on purpose, but I do. I'm human. And when I'm hurt, I have to think about the gospel. Say, I'm a sinner too. I need grace too. And when I remember that, I'm much more patient than other people. Do to others as God has done to you. Show grace and forgiveness. Supernatural forgiveness and grace made possible only by the power of the gospel. Only way that you can do this is if you're truly following Christ and you're meditating on the gospel, you can then show grace and show radical, supernatural, inexplicable forgiveness. And the Lord's table is a picture of that. The Lord's table is a picture of forgiveness and grace that's so undeserved, and yet we have been transformed because of his kindness towards us. Lastly, as we close here, and then actually partake of the Lord's table, is it's pointing to Christ's return. So the fourth point is the gospel is displayed in communion because communion is pointing to Christ's return. If you want a big word, it's an eschatological. That just means the end. It just means the fulfillment of God's plan in the end. That's what this is. That's what communion is. Read verse 26 to you. We've read it already earlier. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He's going to come back. And so communion is pointing backwards. It points backwards to what? To Passover, ultimately to the cross. It points back to our redemption in Christ. But it also is a sign that points forward. Well, it points forward to what? To the day when Christ comes back and he fulfills, he accomplishes, he consummates is the word. Talked about that last week. When he consummates, when he completes his redemptive plan. And so when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we're saying, okay, we're saying something really big. When our original father and mother were in the Garden of Eden, they sinned, they rebelled, and a curse came upon the earth. And now eating and drinking is work, and it's toil, and it's difficult to grow you know, food and and now food doesn't come easily. You have to go hunt for it, and you have to grow it. So there's a curse on the ground. But one day, when God completes his plan, and we're in the new heavens, the new earth, we're going to eat of the tree of life. We're going to partake of the Lord's banquet table and have a feast. And the curse on the ground will be removed, and we'll enter back into Eden. But this time, it's going to be the entire globe, the new heavens, and the new earth. And so when we eat this bread and drink this cup, it's a shadow. It's a shadow of, that's pointing to what's going to be fulfilled one day when we eat and drink of the Lord's table in the new earth at this wedding feast, the consummation of God's plan where we will be with Jesus forever with no more pain and no more sin and no more struggles. All that's going to be history. 
And so this points to the future when the curse on eating and drinking is lifted. And God consummates his plan. And I can't wait to taste of that fruit of the tree of life. I honestly can't wait to taste that fruit. Can't wait to be with Jesus in full glory when this life and all of its pains and struggles are a memory. And this reminds us of that, and it points to that. Jesus is alive. He has a plan. He's accomplishing it in and through you. And the Lord's table is significant. It's a picture of the gospel. And so this morning, we're going to partake of that. Before I call the men to the front and the worship team, I just want to pray for you. Maybe you're here this morning, and maybe this is the first time that you've ever really heard the gospel. Maybe this is the first time that you ever really understood the points of the cross and what Jesus did on the cross for you. Communion is for believers in Jesus. It's a picture of our salvation, and so it's not for people that have not believed in Jesus. Communion is for believers only. It, it would be nothing to you if you didn't believe in Jesus, but today you can believe in him. Just ask him to forgive you. Express your repentance, your complete trust in him, and he'll save you. He will. And if you do that, we have cards at the back table. You can fill it out, no pressure, and I can call you. and We, we can meet and talk about how you can continue to grow more and progress in your faith. Father, we thank you for giving us this incredible morning to look at your word, to be challenged by it. I thank you, Father, for your goodness. I thank you, Father, that even though we don't deserve anything good from you, you have saved us. We thank you for the very gospel that has transformed us, and I thank you, Father, for communion. That's a picture of it. May we approach your table with clean hearts, with a lifestyle of faith and repentance. I pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you, who is talking to you as we speak and responding to your gospel. May you represent, or may you, Father, just reveal yourself rather to them, and may they know that you are real and that they'd be born again of your spirit and experience your joy. Help us, Father, who, those of us that do believe in you, that we would approach your table knowing, Father, that there is some solemnity, that this is important. But, Father, we are celebrating this morning your salvation that you've given to us. Thank you for this time that we've had, and we just pray this in your son's name. Amen. I'm going to ask our men. Please come to the front. We're going to be